Gracious God, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Please make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Father, help us to love what you love and to do what you command. Amen. Well, our text this morning is from Romans 10, but in Romans 10, Paul is going to quote Moses in Deuteronomy 30, so we're going to read both. Uh, So starting in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, hear the word of God. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And then our main text this morning from Romans 10 4 through 9. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, if you're like me, uh, you have experienced the pitiful and pathetic feeling of searching for something that was close to you the whole time. You have felt the feeling that comes when you use the flashlight on your phone to try to find your phone. And this is a pretty common theme in stories that we tell. Remember Dumbo thought that it was a feather that made him fly, but it was his ears the whole time. Dorothy, in The Wizard of Oz, searched for the power to take her back to Kansas, but it was her slippers the whole time. And this week at VBS, Jason and Jenny desperately wanted to go to Wild Wagons Amusement Park, but she lost her tickets. And wouldn't you know it, they were in Jenny's pocket the whole time. So these quests were unnecessary because what they needed was near to them the whole time. Now in Romans 10, Paul is going to tell us how near God is to us in Christ Jesus and how this nearness can save us. Now he's going to do this in a very dramatic way, in a very dramatic section of scripture. See, we're in Romans 10, and Romans 9, 10, and 11 are tricky. 
not just in their theology, but in their implications. And to make it even trickier, Paul is going to quote and even remix three verses that we read from Deuteronomy 30, where Moses talks about the law of God. So it's going to take a little bit of work on our part, but we get to end at the table where we see God's nearness to us through the work of Christ. So here we go. Uh, Since we are dropping into the middle of this section like confused paratroopers, uh, let's get our context. Here, Paul is explaining that the Christ event, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, has become the grounds for humanity to be right with God. And Paul calls this faith righteousness, where faith acts as sort of the spiritual glue that connects us to Jesus, so that we are as righteous before God as Jesus is righteous. And when we believe that Jesus has actually done this for us, Jesus becomes the righteousness that we so desperately need. And Paul is sad and frustrated. He's frustrated because the Jewish people are ignoring Christ as the way to God. He's grieved that they're pursuing a righteousness based on their own abilities to follow God's law. And he summarizes it a few verses before our text in chapter 9, verse 31. Here's his summary. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Paul knows that Jesus has come as a better law keeper than any of us, a better mediator between God and man, and a better way to the Father. So now he's going to contrast the way that these Jews view salvation, which is a reliance on observing the law, and the way that Jesus offers salvation through faith in Jesus' work. In the next verse at the end of chapter 9, in verse 32, he has just named Christ a stumbling stone. He says this, they, these Jews, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul is saying that Jesus himself is the plan of salvation. He is the rock. And we will either use this massive stone for shelter, meaning we'll be saved, or we're going to trip over it, meaning that we'll endure, uh, ignore him and be condemned. So Paul, like Moses, puts these two paths in front of us. Will we be ignorant of the righteousness of God, or will we embrace it and trust that Jesus actually did give us his own righteousness. And you can see why Paul is upset. He's sad. These are his own countrymen. Remember, Paul was born a Jew. And his own countrymen are not right with God. They will receive the covenant curses of anyone who tries to keep the whole law, but can't. And he's frustrated because Jesus is being ignored. Jesus stands in front of them saying, I am the fulfillment of everything that you're looking for. All of your study of the word and of the law should have brought you to me. It should have prepared you to see me 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I have this righteousness as a gift for you. You don't have to earn it. You just have to believe that your works cannot save you and that I can. Notice that his frustration, though, never turns to gloating or taunting. He doesn't take any pleasure in some moral high ground. In fact, quite the opposite. If you go back to Romans 9 and verse 2, he says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And there's a good check on our hearts as we speak to our neighbors. Do we love them this much? I might love my neighbor enough to bring his trash can up, uh, maybe even to share some cookies, but I have never even thought about trading my salvation for his. Well, in verse 4 of chapter 10, Paul is going to give us his main point for the passage. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, when he says end, it holds a double meaning. It is both the purpose and also the fulfillment of the law. <clears throat> and so a question might be rising up in your mind. And the question might be, so is Christ better than the law? And you need to squelch that question. That is a nonsense question, and you need to get rid of it. Christ loves the law, and the law is perfect, reviving the soul. Christ loves the law so much that he kept every piece of it in perfect obedience. So that question is ridiculous. That's a trash question. What your brain intends to ask is this. As a vehicle for being right with God, is faith in Christ better than law-keeping? What a wonderful question your brain just asked. And the answer, of course, is that faith righteousness is infinitely better than law-keeping righteousness. In fact, law-keeping righteousness has never worked, which is one of Paul's points in the book of Romans. Paul said his own record of law-keeping, which I might suggest is better than mine, uh, is worthless. So faith righteousness is the end and purpose of the law. It all points us to Jesus. And now Paul is going to prove this point using two quotes from the Old Testament, one from Leviticus 18 and one that we've read from Deuteronomy 30. Chapter 10, verse 5. <clears throat> For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The context here is that Israel is away from Pharaoh and settling in a new part of the land. And the Israelites underneath him wanted to start to live like their neighbors. And so this is a warning from God in a new place. And Moses is saying, after you've been rescued from the Egyptians, don't go back and live like them. Don't be re-enslaved in your hearts by wandering away from God's law. Don't receive the covenant curses now that you've received covenant blessings. Now, Paul's going to take this quote and push it forward to a new audience and says, after being set free from righteousness that comes from law-keeping, don't go back to it. One theologian puts it like this, if one appeals to the law as a way of life, especially after Christ has come, 
One gets a covenant of ascending, climbing, trying to find God, but instead only finding a consuming fire. There's nothing but potential covenant curses waiting for you there if you do this. There's something better than law-keeping righteousness. What is it? Well, it's in Romans 10.6. It's a righteousness based on faith. And that sounds great, but I'll bet it's really hard to find, right? Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Now, this is a remixed quote from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. And the quote starts with the phrase, do not say in your heart. Now, this is one of those phrases that acts as a check engine light for you, where you're about to hear something challenging. It's sort of like when someone says, with all due respect, and you know you're about to hear something that's probably disrespectful. Or when someone says, now you know I love you, but the thing that's coming after that is probably not all that loving. When Moses says this phrase, He's about to warn the people against self-reliance and self-righteousness. I'll give you just two examples. In Deuteronomy 8, uh, this is after the Israelites are going to inherit the land that God gives. He says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And in Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, this is after God has removed their enemies. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out from before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Now, Moses' context, Moses's context in chapter 30 is that he is dying He is giving final warnings, final blessings to his people. And he wants them to understand that now that you've received these blessings from God, the land and the rest from your enemies, don't begin to think that you have earned this. Don't get all uppity about your performance. So what exactly is Paul now doing with this remix? Well, first, he's echoing the exact warnings of Moses. Beware of self-righteousness. Do not say in your heart, who's going to go up to heaven to fetch us this righteousness? Is this how we become right with God? We take on an extraordinary spiritual quest? No. Jesus Christ has come down from heaven to give this righteousness to us. It will not be earned because gifts are not earned. Second, Paul is insisting that Christ is as accessible as the law was for Moses and the Israelites. Do you remember how they got it? God met with Moses and gave it to them. It wasn't confusing, nor did Moses have to compete in some sort of spiritual Olympics to go get it. The Lord invited Moses into his presence and gave it to Moses as the people's representative. And in the same way, Christ has descended to earth as the eternal word and promised to make this salvation by faith available to us. But maybe, maybe we are a dense people. Could you say this again using different words? 
Romans 10, 7. Or, who will ascend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, this is a remix of the next line in Deuteronomy 30. And within the Old Testament context, Moses is saying that you don't have to journey to other lands across far seas or into other cultures to receive God's words. Those words are near to us, given directly to us. Now, Paul's going to do something interesting. Uh, He's going to reinterpret the sea, what the Israelites would have thought as the chaotic waters, and he's going to see it as an abyss, the waters of death. So he's pushing this analogy to its extreme, saying, you don't even have to die just to see who God is or learn what God says. God's law is not locked up in heaven, nor is it kept beyond the scope of our human lives. We can know it while we live. We don't have to wait to die to learn about God. And so in quoting these verses, Paul's point is that Christ is as accessible as the law. And he has done both of these actions that are necessary to bring salvation to us. He has done the descent into earth, and he has done the ascent from the grave back into heaven. Nothing else is necessary. And as a side note, this is why faith righteousness is allergic to boasting. You ever wonder why Paul keeps talking about boasting? Because it might be possible to boast if your righteousness depends on how good you are. But if the reason that you are right with God is because God brought you his word, opened your blind eyes, shined his light in your dark heart, and awakened all of your faculties to his spirit, where's the room for boasting? Paraphrasing Paul elsewhere, our law-keeping righteousness is at best a dirty diaper. So let's not brag about it. So Paul's remix of Moses is brilliant as he connects the nearness of law to the nearness of faith. The law was not too difficult for Israel to find because God gave it to them. And it wasn't too difficult for Israel to do because God will put it in their hearts. Now, the righteousness that comes by faith is not too difficult for us to find because God is going to locate it in our hearts as well. It's also not too difficult to do. Why is this word not difficult to do? Well, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. It's not too difficult because Christ has put it into our hearts. If you're wondering why we can say that God is near to us in our hearts and in our minds, it's not because we all have a spark of the divine within us or that salvation comes from within or that our hearts are necessarily good. It's because the word of God has been planted there. It's been put in us so that we can profess something that we cannot naturally profess, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, as faith righteousness, is given to us as a gift, not an errand for us to run. But Paul's point is even stronger, actually. It's not that Jesus Christ is as near as the law to us. It's more accessible. He's more keepable. It's written on our heart 
when God brings us new life. We call that regeneration. His truth is on your tongue when God enables you to see Jesus as Lord. We call that faith. So that Jesus is not far off. He's not hidden in philosophies that must be imported from exotic places. You can be real dumb and know Jesus, I know. It's not kept secure behind some Herculean tests of strength and morality where we have to prove something to God before he gives us faith. It's also not forfeited by our previous sins. Do you remember the prodigal son in Luke 15? His confession is, I have sinned into heaven. And yet, what does the father do? The father looks for him and welcomes him back and throws a party for him. Also, remember who's talking. This is Paul. Uh, Paul knows about forgiveness better than almost anyone, I would bet. So Jesus is not far off. And we know this because of verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul reminds us that when we're speaking about law and faith, we're really speaking of salvation. How are we saved from judgment? And in God's plan of salvation, something new has happened. A new mystery has been revealed, and it's Jesus. Jesus is near and not far off, and faith righteousness is not too difficult because he's done it for us. Faith is in the mouth when we proclaim Christ as resurrected, and in the heart when we believe that. One theologian puts it like this, through Christ, God plants his word in the human mouth and heart in a way that the law could only anticipate. And so we're able to say, Jesus is Lord. Now, what exactly are we confessing when we say Jesus is Lord? Well, a lot of things probably, but at least this, that Jesus is God as much as the Father is God because of the work that he did. And that Jesus exercises lordship over all of creation, including over me. And Paul's audience has really needed to hear this. The, the lordship part is what separated these new, maybe baby Christians, from his Jewish audience. His Jewish readers understood the reverence that was due to the Lord, but they were unwilling to give that honor to Jesus. And the baby Christians needed to hear this word, Lord. It's a specific word, it's kyrios, usually reserved for Roman emperors. And Jesus must either function as their highest allegiance, the Lord over all, or he is not Lord at all. And just like they needed to hear it, we need to hear it. Without this statement that Jesus is Lord, the church has very little to say to the world. We have nothing of substance to offer. Without Jesus, we have a pile of friendly ethics without teeth. If Jesus never was, or if Jesus stayed dead, then we are all dead in our sins. And perhaps worse, there is no justice coming at all. No reckoning for wickedness, no reward for righteousness. Without Jesus, Christians are a bit silly. 
pushing an ethic of nice words with no history or future to back them up. Without Jesus, words like love and justice and forgiveness are ultimately weightless. But if Jesus is Lord, then he resurrected and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he promises to raise us up in the same way and bring us to the Father's house with great joy. And he promises to judge the wickedness in the world and he promises to render the whole earth new again. And that means we have something vital to say to the world. That he came once quietly and willing to endure suffering, but that he's coming again not quietly, with a sword. And so we call the world to examine itself and repent. We call the world, as verse 9 says, to repent and confess and believe. Believe what? Well, the resurrection and all the implications of the resurrection. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then his claims were legitimate. And that means the Son of God has authority over me and you and heaven and earth. If Jesus is Lord, then we are his subjects, and his desires matter more than ours. We are literally subordinates. And this believing can never just be a recital of creeds and verses, but it has to be a long loyalty that includes everything I do and everything I think and everything I say and everything I want. Notice, too, notice the time travel that happens in verse 9. It's a present confession, if you confess and believe now, in a past event that God raised him from the dead with a future certainty. You will be saved. It's wonderful. And so the question for us this morning, as we think about the table, is what do we do with all of this? Paul is saying that Jesus is not too far from us and not too difficult for us. He's not hidden. He's not forfeited by our many sins. He's not held back as a spiritual trophy for the best of us. He is near and given to us as a good and gracious gift. So what now? Well, at least three things. Live like this is true. Do not misuse the law by trusting in it for righteousness. Do not reject God's plan of salvation, which is Jesus. There is a false pursuit of the law for holiness, and it leads to despair. So if you keep God's laws today, thank Jesus and stop giving him your resume. If you are a Christian, there is nothing that you can do to increase your status. He already loves you at a maximum amount. And if you don't know Jesus yet, you will not impress him with your good works. So thank him, lest you say in your heart. A second, just like God's word was supposed to orient his people under the law of Moses, Are we allowing Jesus Christ to orient us? Remember what the law did for them. It set their calendar, their worship, 
their rest, their work, their play, their priorities. It dictated the terms of their relationships. And the question for us is, do our weekly rhythms reflect our most basic perfection, profession, that Christ is Lord? Or maybe more convicting, do our friends and neighbors think that we think Jesus is Lord? Is there enough evidence there? And finally, the table is the best possible application of this text. At the table, we see that Christ is not too far off. He is not hidden away in an unreachable heaven. He is not across the sea or buried in a watery grave. He is near to us, as near as the bread and the wine that he offers to us. He is the host of our righteousness and salvation. He has secured eternal life for us and has secured a place for us in his Father's house. And between now and that day, when we see him in glory, he hosts us here at his table. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your nearness to us could be a consuming fire, but through Christ, it is a blessing. Meet us this morning at this table with this bread and this juice and make us long for the day when we feast at your table without this sin that clings so closely. Thank you for your promises to us that you will carry to completion the work that you have begun in us, that nothing can separate us from your love, and that we will be presented in your house with great joy. Amen.